Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Well, this week we're in Yitro, uh, also Jethro. That's, it, this correlates to the book of Exodus in chapter 18, verse 1, and it goes through chapter 20, verse 23. This, of course, is inclusive of obviously the Ten Commandments of Exodus 19, uh, and, and of course the, the beginning of the instruction of what those commandments look like, the first chapter of chapter uh, of, of, for section number 20. Before I go into my spiel and discuss this topic, as well as other, other discussions about our, 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 uh, our Bibles today, uh, any comments or questions that you have this particular uh, subject matter, this, what we covered today on, on what, we, what we just read, I may or may not get to those topics if you, if you, if you have a specific questions. I'll be spending most of my time on the functionality of chapter 18 today. Any comments or questions? If you're in the audience or online, that is, uh, go ahead and unmute yourself if you have the questions at all so we can hear you. Otherwise, any questions in the audience? Well, that's going to be easy then. All right, let's move forward. So uh, you will note, as far as our discussion today, we're going through, obviously, Yitro, uh, Exodus 18. We'll touch a little bit on Matthew 19 today, as well as a little bit of Revelation as well, as far as answering a few questions along the way, discussing how uh, some of these details spell out or play out because mind you, when we discuss things in the Torah, remember that the things in the Torah are instructions. They are ways of how you will live. As Moses said, he puts before us two ways of life. Choose life or choose death. This is how to live as a flesh and blood person on this earth. Now, as we also know, God also told Moses, we'll, we'll read that later on in our Torah portion, that what you, the images, what you see, Moses, what you make here on earth are actually variations or duplicates of what's in heaven. So when we have a, an explanation of how God wants something done, it's explained that way because he wants us to understand that he does that also or will be doing that at some point in time in, 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 in the future, depending on how the structure looks like. And we'll discuss that as well, in particular about Yitro's uh, explanation of how to, Moses to handle it. You have somebody, go ahead, Pamela. Okay. I wanted to comment with you about 18. I wanted to comment 20, 24. It says, In every place I cause my name to be remembered, I shall come to you and bless you. And so he was talking about the festivals, the holy time. And that's why I was hung up on Bar Noon in Wyoming. That's all. Uh, so that, that, that's an interesting question, point. So in the place where, you push, where he puts his name, you will note most of the audience have done this. I, I couldn't quite hear all of what Pamela had pointed out, but she did point out that uh, wherever God places his name, as far as festivals are concerned, right? Most of us have been to various festivals at different times, whether it's Passover, Sukkot, or, or Yom Kippur, any of the festivals, we go somewhere. Typically, us, a small community organization here in our little group or the Hall of Fellowship, We'll find some building to rent or some place to, to fellowship, or even if it's outside, we'll do outside if necessary. So, and we, we do that. Uh, now, we could argue, well, did God put his name there or not? Well, mm-hmm. that is a great, good, excellent question. 
But I also, we, we as, a, as a fellowship trust the concept that wherever two are gathered in his name, he'll be there. That's the principle that if I have at least somebody with me, we're gathered in the name of Messiah, in the name of our God as well, either Messiah or our God, I'm not going to quibble about the details, um, that he would be there. Now, admittedly, as far as where he placed his name, the last place that I know of recorded in our Torah, or actually our, our Bible, it's not Torah, actually it's later on, where he placed his name was obviously the temple in Jerusalem, which has been long since deserted and destroyed. It no longer exists at all. Anytime it's been attempted to be rebuilt, God has made sure that could not happen uh, through various supernatural events. Those of you who study history, uh, about the massive earthquakes that occurred uh, when they were trying to rebuild it after Titus. Uh, various things that God prevented any opportunity to rebuild where he once placed his name. As Messiah explained to the woman, that when she was asking the Samaritan woman, she was asking where should we worship God on this mountain versus in Jerusalem. And God pointed out, there will come a time that you will worship God neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but rather in spirit and truth. So when we decided where God places his name, we as a group, our small little group, and I'm sure many groups throughout the world do the same process. I, I say I'm sure I've never actually asked them. But they say, okay, well, we have an appointed time. Let's meet at our appointed time, regardless of the place, because at least we know as long as we're meeting in God's name, God will be there in some capacity. So and that's a blessing. We do our best to do that. Uh, it is also, uh, and, 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 and it varies obviously from place to place. But it, wherever he puts his name, that's what our offerings up. Now, this is an interesting point. God points out you will obviously make an altar and you put your offerings where he places his name. Well, as Christians or Messianic Jews, we know our offerings aren't physical animals, but they are actually actions and words. So that's where offerings are defined as, as a, as a one who believer in Messiah. That's where, we, that's where we know what they are. So we offer just as many offerings as the people of Moses' day offered. When we sin, we offer our repentance. When we are thrilled in God's blessings, we offer him our praise. We do the exact same thing, and we share those words and share those great things with people around us. It's the same thing. Nothing has changed. And though the animal isn't necessarily involved, our words are involved and our actions are involved wherever God put his name. So that's a blessing. It's, it's, a good, it's a good tool to use and a thing we can stand on at this point in history. I am not saying the temple will not be rebuilt and offerings would not resume. I think they probably will, most likely, with God's blessing. And that, that, is, a, that is an opinion based on a few scriptures. So I'm not going to go into that today. Let's see. Uh, okay. <clears throat> so in our spiel today, we'll talk about a little about Yitro. Now, we know his father-in-law. Uh, his father-in-law obviously been around a while. He's probably a relatively old man. I can't say his exact age. His age is not recorded. But as a good father-in-law, how many of you have ever had a father-in-law? <laughs> if you've ever had a father-in-law, the function of father-in-law is to give good advice. That's your job. Because you're not the dad anymore. You really aren't. You're not the, the one in charge anymore. What are you now? You're the one who could say, well, if I were you, I would do this in your shoes. But it's up to you. You're a counselor, an advisor, a suggester. Someone who says, well, maybe this will work or maybe that'll work better. That's your job. It's no different to become a friend. A wise friend, theoretically. Somebody who's been around a while, but you're still a friend. So what does Jethro do? He sees 
His son-in-law is under great stress. Look what you're doing all day long, not just you, but all the people around you. All of them have to wait their turn. Mind you, imagine, for example, today, we have this system in place where there is one judge on earth who settles every dispute, every one of them, including the he picked my apple off my tree, but it was overhanging the fence. No, it wasn't. It was on the fence. Let's bring that dispute to the judge. Let's bring he threw away or he broke that, that, that tool of mine. Well, it was already broken. I just picked it up, but you broke it. It was in your hands. Bring that to the judge. Imagine that's the way life would work. Can you imagine the line it would be behind that judge? Yes, Isaac, give your hand up. That's the, that's the way siblings work. The siblings work that way, yes. <laughs> siblings work that way. We're meeting mom and dad. Yeah, mom's the judge. They all wait their turn and plead their case. <laughs> so that type of process was not intentional to how to, to function. Now, I make this as, as simple and quib- uh, a small, small uh, quibble, uh, quibbles, yeah, that's the right word, um, regarding disputes that are minor, right? Now imagine for a moment our judge is Messiah living in Jerusalem and you're here in Sonoma County and you have a dispute with your neighbor. What do you do? Do you hop on a plane and go out there and put your ticket in? Say, okay, okay, I'll see you in, let's see, my list uh, 83 years, we'll cover it. Because <laughs> the list is really, really long. <laughs> it's unrealistic. That would be absurd. Well, why would we do that? Well, we wouldn't. We as a people know that's not practical. That's unwise. It's not functional. We are not foolish, nor is our God. The idea that God would have every dispute settled by Messiah is an absurd concept and not true in the biblical scriptures at all. That is, an, that is a false idea. In reality, the principle of delegating is very strong and advocated multiple ways and multiple places within inside of our Bibles. Both the Tanakh as well as New Testament scriptures all say the same thing. That minor disputes Messiah is not going to be addressing. And major disputes he may be addressing, but minor ones he would not be. What is minor ones addressed by? As Apostle Paul explains to us, we do. We address them. We handle our minor disputes. We don't bring them to God. We don't bring them to Messiah every time we have a dispute. We handle them ourselves. That's the functionality. We'll discuss some of the details of what Apostle Paul was explaining later on as we get through this. Um, before we go there, though, I want to point out to you, there's a contrast here, a great contrast, which was last tour portion that Jeff had covered for me. Thank you so much, sir. And this one. Note that Jethro is a Midianite, right? He is not Israelite. Yeah, he's a descendant into Abraham, but not, not, not related to, to Israel itself. Amalek's descendant through, I think it's Esau, if I recall correctly. They're, they're all relatives, but they're not Israelites at all. Now, last week, when we covered this topic, uh, one of the things brought up was, I believe the questions were brought up on, on people online had asked, maybe it was in person, I can't remember, um, had asked, Amalek had attacked 
the Israelites, the outer border, the, the tail of the stragglers, as they were traveling through wilderness. And of course, Joshua gets up and they have to go, let's go fight them. And Moses' hands are pretty high, so hold his hands up the whole battle. And uh, her and, 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 and Aaron help hold his arms up. And the whole battle, Amalek is, of course, defeated and they run away. Sounds great, sounds wonderful. But we discussed this topic and it was brought up by two people. I know I brought it up once, somebody else brought it up as well. Is the nature of the concept of Amalek. Why was Amalek attacking? Of course, God made a decree at that moment in time that when time comes due, Amalek will be wiped out. He will, every man, woman, and child will be killed. And there are no, no exceptions, including the infant. No exceptions. They would make sure because of how they treated Israel when they came out of Egypt. That was God's decree, and God is always correct. Regardless of what we may question, it doesn't matter. He's always right. He knows the heart of Amalek and the heart of the people before they're even born. That's, that, that, he knows them, so he knows the decree is going to be. Now, we have the contrast of these people just got out of Egypt. All the stories and miracles everybody heard, everybody knew the stories that happened in Egypt. It was well publicized. Oh, look, the Pharaoh's army was wiped out in the water. And the, the plagues came through. This, this was not a, an Isa that no human had ever heard of it before. Oh, what's this random, strange fable coming out of Egypt? I, I've never heard of this. It was well known. Now, I say it was well-known because Jethro implies it is well-known. As you point out, when it points out, when Jethro first comes, says, hey, I'm here. Moses, oh, hey, yeah, great nice to meet you, greet, meet and greet kind of thing. Um, and they relay what's going on. Jethro's reply is, now I know, this is verse 11 of chapter 18, now I know that Jehovah is greater than all the gods for in every manner in which the Egyptians had conspired against them. Now, note, Egyptian gods were considered great, not just by Egypt. Many nations knew of and heard of or were familiar with the Egyptian gods. Egypt was very powerful. And the only explanation people had at the time is if you were powerful because some god blessed you to be powerful. Egypt was powerful. Therefore, all the nations around them knew Egypt was powerful and deferred to Egypt with its military might and its strength. Yes, there were quibbles, they were fighting, but reality is they all knew of Egyptian, Egyptian theology and gods. They were not unfamiliar with the concept. So when Jethro hears about this in Midian, which is right next door, he hears this in Midian as far as what happened in Egypt, and he hears about it and then comes to Moses. Mind you, so he's in Midian. I'm not sure where the location is. I'm, sh- I'm sure not too far away from the Mount, uh, 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 Mount of Sinai, but somewhere in that general area. He, the message or the story of Egypt reaches his ears. He grabs Zipporah, grabs his two grandsons. Let's go. Let's go, let's go, see, go meet them. So the story of Egypt meets him. So the story of Egypt has now spread at least to Jethro. We learn later on, of course, it spreads to throughout Canaan when uh, 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 Rahab discusses this topic. He says, hey, Everybody knows what happened to you people. <laughs> we all know the story. It's well-known, well-documented. So the Egyptian, Egyptian gods were not unheard of. Mind you, what is Jethro's profession? He's a priest. A priest of Midian. He's a pagan priest. So his job is, uh, what's your god of the flavor for the week? Okay, I'll offer this god for you and offer this whatever. No, I'm not sure what I shouldn't be so, 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 so flip about it. I'm not sure. He may have offered a particular, for a particular God. I'm not sure. I mean, they may have had their own specialties. 
whatever God he was familiar with was the one he, was, he, he, he dealt with. But that was the profession, his way of life, as well as, of course, took care of sheep and such, but that's just a way of, of how you survive. So he knew what gods were, or at least believed what they, what they were. And now when God overpowered all of the Egyptian gods, he points out he's greater than all the gods. That includes his own. So Jethro's realizing and recognizing that this God that did all this to Egyptian gods is greater than the one that I serve too, even though my God may not necessarily be Egyptian. He could be the God of Midian that he serves. They make up a name, I don't really care. Whatever God it is, just realizing that my God, who I was a minister of, I was a preacher of, I was a priest of, is not as great as the gods in Egypt. And your God defeated the gods of Egypt. Therefore, he is also greater than my own God. So Jethro's realized that, 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 that making that realization and public statement after hearing the whole story, he's recognizing that this God is fantastically great, an awesome God. And that is his response. Contrast that to Amalek's response. Did Amalek know the story of Egypt? Did Amalek, who's right next door also, did they hear about Egyptian, the Pharaoh's army being wiped out? Had they heard about the plagues? Well, Jethro did. He's further away than they are. You better believe they heard about it. But instead of their fear of this God, instead of their concern about how great he was, they said, this opportunity to kill him and defeat them, wipe them out, get rid of them, destroy them. That is the opposite response that Jethro has. So I bring this up because Jethro's chapter 18 is, for the most part, put out of order in chronologically speaking. It's early. Because it, he, he actually shows up and it says he at, already, they're already in the mountain yet. So 19, they show the mountain. He shows up chapter 18, they're already there. So something is placed out of order. Why is it placed out of order? It gives a good contrast between two groups of people. There's Amalek and Jethro's, the Kanaz family. Both of them hear the same information. Both have opposite responses. Amalek's response, destroy, kill, maim, steal, rape, whatever. Jethro's response, fear, subdue, be careful. This God is awesome. Now, these are both non-believing groups. They have their own gods they followed, but two different responses to them. It's a good contrast to realize and see that Israel is supposed to be a people that follows God. That's the idea, right? They're following through Moses. They're following the pillar. They follow God. They're, they're, they're supposed, that's, the, that's the symbol, the image we get. And they interact with a people group in the world, in this case Midian as well as Amalek, that have two different backgrounds, two different religious perspectives, and they both approach this new God that we're not familiar with opposite of each other. One as an opportunity to attack and destroy, and the other responds as number two, submit and subdue. Be humble, humble yourself. I bring this up for a purpose. In our world around us, don't raise your hands because it's a rhetorical question. There are people that exist that may not necessarily know or believe in our God, yet are good people. They live their life honorably, not perfect, but honorably. They care for one another. They show respect to other people, even though they're not necessarily followers of our God. And there's also the opposite. 
other people in our, in our world that exist, our neighbors, friends, whatever, that live in this world do not fear with our God, but have no respect for the people and live their lives in an unholy or unkind manner. Both exist, do they not? Both are around, and we know of both sides. We've met them both at different times in our lives. What does it tell us about people? There are typically two responses when it comes to God, life and death. Because as Hannah, the mother of Samuel, points out, we this up all the time, in God, actions are weighed. What you do is how he measures you, not what you think. It's what you do. So in the case of Amalek and Jethro, both believed in different gods. Both had different traditions, different beliefs of pagan belief systems, unholy, unrighteous, unright, <laughs> how to word this, unjust philosophies about God. But both responded differently because in God, actions are weighed. He measures your actions. What did you do? What do you do? What will you do? What do you want to do? What those actions are is how he measures us. And that's reiterated in the book of Revelation, the same thing. You are weighed by what you've done. What did you not do? What should you have done? What could you not have done? What could you do? All those actions are where it is measured. That's, where we're, that's what the whole written book of life is based on what we have done. What do we do? do it's just a, not just believing in Messiah, but how do you reflect that? How do you show that? What do you do with that life? That type of thing. So two different responses, two different pagan backgrounds, non-believing people, but yet they had two opposite responses, and one, Jethro's, was blessed. How was it blessed? Well, let's go to 1 Samuel 15. Now, this is, this is a, 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 uh, uh, an event that occurs later on. Many generations have gone by. I think it's like I don't know, 400 years past or thereabouts. I, I, I could be off on, on, on my chronology there, so forgive me on that. I, I didn't look up the exact number of years. So Samuel, this is regarding the Amalek ending of Amalek. This is what happened regarding our last Torah portion. Samuel 15, or first, sorry, 1 Samuel 15. There's a small, small section here discussing about Jethro's descendants, what kind of impact this man had on his descendants. So 1 Samuel 15, starting in verse 1, only the first uh, what, nine verses or so we'll read, we'll read today. So 1 Samuel 15, verse 1 says, Samuel, this word in the prophet, also to King Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice, the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish what Amalek did to Israel how he laid wait for him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Talim, uh, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah. 
And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from the Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Just stop there. So in this instance, we have, again, a conscience of Amalek and Kenites. Kenites were descendants of Jethro. So all of Jethro's descendants, his grandkids, great-grandkids, great-great-great-great, all the way through, they're classified as Kenites. That's who they were. So that family group lives in and among Amalekites together. Right? Now, as we, I discussed earlier in our example, the people around us, there are people who are good, who don't necessarily believe in God, and people who are bad, who don't necessarily believe in God. And yet they live in the world around us, do they not? Could be a neighbor, could be an acquaintance, could be a coworker. It doesn't make a difference. Could be even, could be even a child or relative it makes a difference. The point is that there could be good, there could be bad, and they intermingle with one another. Now, here's a principle that we all know really well. Does good corrupt bad, or does bad corrupt good? Bad corrupts good. That's how it works. No matter how good a person is, you can't make a bad person good. But a bad person can easily corrupt someone who is good, influencing, making them go in a direction that is unwise. So in Amalek and the Kenizzites, who live together, now they still have their own religious belief. They still have their own philosophies in life. And so much so they can interact with each other. They have not too different from each other, right? Can two people dwell together who are diametrically opposed? Not for very long. So the Kenites and Amalekites, they can't be that different in how they live their lives, meaning their religious belief or how they function is not too extreme for one another, yet they live together. And God points out in the case of Samuel, or sorry, King Saul, but hey, because of the, the kindness you showed, meaning your ancestor 400 years ago did something nice to us. As a result, you will be spared. Come out while you can. So as God pointed out with Moses, the Ten Commandments, I show who's jealous God, um, I show mercy to those who love me for the thousands of generations. We're talking hundreds of generations, well, probably 10 generations have gone by for 400 years span, at least, well, probably 10 generations, but could we, could we, could we, could we nine, some of the ballpark range. Nine to 10 generations have, have, will have lapsed since they came out of Egypt. Maybe a little more or a little less, hard to say. But that blessing that Jethro did is still being poured out and attributed to them. That kindness being shown. That judgment that Saul is making is that because of this one instance that occurred, that is the reason I will be sparing you. So, of course, he got out and he was spared. And I'm like, for the most part, with, of course, Agag being spared and a few animals and such, 
um, they were mostly, for the most part, destroyed. So this action that Jethro did had long-standing benefits, right? That's what we can see. It has long-standing benefits. So when we have a world around us, we have people who are kind or honorable people, even though they don't necessarily believe in God, but they can be kind, maybe not in everything, but in some things. Is that a blessing to them? Well, it was a blessing to Jethro and his descendants, so yes, it's a blessing to them too. Because again, in God, actions are weighed. What you do matters. So you have this good contrast, and of course, Amalek was, there, it was a curse to them, their actions, and not to say at the time of an event which took place back with Moses, but roughly 400 years later, it is their turn to actually have them be repaid. It is now time to have those actions repaid. Those negative, those negative actions are now being poured out upon you. It being being come home to roost, so to speak, in another, another uh, modern-day vernacular. So these are examples that we have. So we have this, these blessings can, can, be, can be extended for a long period of time. Uh, so a good, I'm going to use this term loosely, so forgive me, a good atheist or a good pagan does exist. They're usually hanging on the purse strings of those who are honorable and believers in God usually. Jethro exists, or existed, I should say. He died, of course, but he existed. And when he saw the righteousness of Moses' God, he said, I'm holding on to that one. That's a good God to pay attention to. This one means something to me. I will latch myself to him. He responded. Now, his descendants, not necessarily, but he did. He seemed to respond that way. Um, in that response, is a good thing. We today... We don't use the same process as far as someone doing that. Uh, we, and we, we don't necessarily call it the same thing either. We typically call it baptism or a conversion of some form. Uh, there's also in modern-day Judaism, they use it called bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. It's the same process. It's that I am making a, an outward declaration. This God is the one I think is worth something. Even if I don't fully understand him, He's worth something to me. I'm going to make an outward declaration. I'm going to follow him to some degree. Amalek, of course, responded the opposite. This guy has opportunity to destroy, kill, and maim, and take plunder. <clears throat> let's see here. This was... Uh, so now let's go to Jethro's proposal. So uh, in... In Jethro's uh, observations of Moses, so now he's a wise individual. He's not like the most brilliant person necessarily, but he's wise. He's been around a while. His proposal to Moses with this detail of, of, of he's working too hard and judging these people. Jethro's proposal, which of course later on God endorses and says, yes, you will do it this way. So Jethro's proposal is, I'm going to use this, i use an example here. Um, you don't have to answer a question, but think about this for a minute. Have you ever prayed to God needing a verbal answer and someone else coming by unaware of your prayer and verbally says something that is your answer. So God answered it through another human being who actually said the words that you were asking for and you realized that was it. That was the answer I needed. We've experienced that at different times in our lives, some more frequently than others, but it's happened. So in this case, Moses has a problem. So what happens? God sent Jethro. Now, could Mo God have just told Moses directly, 
do it this way instead? Sure, he could have. Could God also answer your question in a voice in your head at night? Yes, he could have. But did he? No. <laughs> he chose the method which he wishes to answer. And in this instant, Moses and the people have a struggle. They've got this problem of they cannot get the information and judgments done in a timely manner or in, in, in a reasonable response time, such a timely manner. So God sends Jethro to explain, hey, if you did it this way and God blessed it, meaning you have to confirm God says it's okay, then go ahead and do it this way. And that's, of course, what he wanted to doing. What I want to bring up to you is the significance of this. <clears throat> so Jethro's proposal has a spiritual application. We discussed this briefly a, a, a little while ago, not just a physical one. So, and God, of course, endorsed this in this process. Later on, we'll read how God endorsed the process. His endorsement was he took a chunk or a piece of the spirit that he gave to Moses and distributed it to individuals throughout the camp as leaders or as judges. That was the methodology which he endorsed the process. So he'll give us peace spirit that's on you and give it to others. Now, as Christians, we understand the spirit, spirit from God. God gives a spirit to us for what purpose? To guide you. To guide you. What's the judge's ultimate function? To guide you. Do it this way versus that way. This is right, that is wrong. The judge's function is to guide. So, practically speaking, the spirit of, from God, the spirit from God's function is to what? To judge for you, to be a judge, to guide you along the way, to instruct you, to teach you, go this way versus that way. That's the ultimate function of how it works. If I'm struggling with something, I pray, God, help me, I'm struggling oh, well, do it this way or do it that way. That's the idea. That's the principle behind it. So we have this concept, the spiritual application of God saying, hey, I'm not going, as I mentioned earlier, the long laundry list that Messiah would have to have. He had to cover every single dispute. Uh, it would take forever and be obscene. So the simple thing is God gave his spirit freely to those who asked, but he distributed amongst the different apostles, right? And if people had disputes, the apostles addressed them. In, those, in the days of Messiah, or shortly after Messiah had died. And of course, the Spirit of God is distributed many people. And the purpose, settle your disputes. Settle the difficulties. Settle the struggles. I believe the Apostle Paul is when I said, do you not know you will judge angels? How is it that you cannot settle your own disputes? But yet, you are supposed to be judging angels at some point, later on, of course, not now. So we have to have this functionality of settling disputes. So, if God uses this process with Moses, what's he going to use the process with Messiah? The same thing. So what is the functionality of having the Spirit of God with you? To be able to be leaders of tens, and fifties, and hundreds, and thousands. That's the functionality of it. That's the spiritual application, how, how it is applied, how it's going to be used on a spiritual level. So the process, the quote, I use a term loosely, government, the quote, that God set up here, I don't like that term, but that's, that's the kind of how it's going to have to work, is that the disputes and difficulties and struggles are settled out amongst the people. 
with those of us who are supposed to be following and understand the principles of God. Each of you in the audience, each people throughout the world who study and follow him in whatever capacity, that's their job. That's one of the primary tasks, to be able to settle disputes. And will there be disputes? Oh, absolutely. Did he not say nations will, nation, nation will not learn war anymore? Well, how are they going to settle their disputes? Because nations still have disagreements. That's my piece of dirt, not your piece of dirt. <laughs> they have border setting disputes all the time. Well, if they're not going to, normally they war over it. They get their arms here, they fight. Well, who stronger wins and decides where the, where, where, where the line happens to be? Who owns what territory? Who has what power? That's how they currently do it. Well, what will their future be like? Well, instead of using war, they have to use the set of disputes the way normal people do. I don't get my club and start beating Larry over the head if he disagrees with me, <laughs> right? And vice versa. We talk. We set disputes by conversation. What's right? What's wrong? What's the best scenario? That's how the process is supposed to work. It's a basic principle, but that, that concept still applies. So we have this interesting point here. So uh, the, 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 this, this concept, which is where a chunk of the spirit of Moses to, to the people to be judges is the same concept, the chunk of the spirit that Messiah had full, full without measure on is just amongst the people, the followers of him as guides, as judges along the way for just, just settling disputes. So in this, in this matter, it's a good thing. It's a positive thing to have. Hence, Messiah's warnings and words of instruction on this matter. How to do it. It's important to know how it's done. So in this instance, let's go to our, our Messiah's ex- explanations. He has a few of them, a few different uh, points he's brought up, a few different places. We have, we'll go through um, the first one. Let's see. I think I'll choose... Yeah, we'll choose uh, Matthew chapter 7 first. Actually, technically, to be fair, it was Matthew chapter 5, but we won't go to 5 just yet. We'll go back to 5 shortly. So, as somebody who has a Spirit of God in them, our job is to do something with it, in particular when it comes to guiding which is also inclusive of judging. So in Matthew chapter 7, the first, now mind you, to be fair, be honest, I am jumping in the middle of a long oration that God, the Messiah is giving, okay? His oration starts in 5 and doesn't end until the end of chapter 7. So this is the middle of a long sermon he's giving regarding specific topics, which we'll get to in a short while, uh, probably a few minutes from now. But so in the middle of it, he discusses a, what we consider... A, what Messiah categorized as a minor thing in the law that God that you that you are to follow as a follower of God. He has a long category of list of things that are minor, but those are the ones that matter to him. Because if you if you follow these minor ones, by definition, you will have followed the major ones. That's the principle behind it. So it's it's the same principle Judaism does today. We call it making hedges. But in this case, God made the hedge, or Messiah more specifically, Messiah did. So Matthew 7, the first uh, six verses there, it talks about the concept of judging. Judge not that you not be judged. Pause there for a minute. Now these, these, uh, 
these are these are statements. Your parenthetical statements, little sections, little topic matters or headers, discussing the concept of what's being discussed. Mind you, we have to be able to have to be able to discern right and wrong, and don't confuse judging with discernment. They're not the same thing. Discerning right and wrong is not the same thing as judging. Discerning some X Y Z person out there is doing something right or is doing wrong. That's called discernment. Because if you have no discernment, you don't know what's right and wrong. If you don't know what's right and wrong, everything's right or everything's wrong. There's no such thing as right and wrong anymore in our modern day society. (laughs) The discernment determines that action or that way of life is right or that action or way of life is wrong. Discernment. Judgment is that there is a punishment that goes with that wrong action or a blessing that goes with that right action. And I am discerning, I'm discerning right and wrong, but then I am making a blessing or a judgment, a condemnation upon the person. That's, that's an, it, it, there is a distinction between them. We go to a court, criminal court in particular, you decide if you're guilty or innocent. That's the discernment of right and wrong. Afterward, the sentencing comes. That's the judgment against you. You might get off and say, you know what, you did it wrong, but we're going to go lenient on you and you are free to go for whatever reason, or maybe on parole. Or, no, you did it wrong, you now have the death penalty. What happens. So the judgment is the sentencing aspect of a scenario. It is not the scenario to determine what's right and what's wrong. Those are separate things. Our judicial system divides them out on purpose because they are, in fact, separate things. We frequently, I hear this quite often, People think, well, don't judge me. And somebody goes, oh, yeah, I'm not judging you. But, okay, people get like, confused. Judge means I have to include a condemnation or a blessing. If I don't include condemnation or blessing, it's not a judgment. If I'm just saying that's right or that's wrong, Moses said don't do that, whatever the case may be, or Moses said, yes, we should do this instead, that's called discernment. That, that's a good thing. We, we're instruction. We're giving instruction. This is what it's supposed to be versus what you did. You can decide what you want to do from that point forward, but when it comes to judgment... What your punishment is, that's beyond me. I'm not job to, to, to punish you. God does the punishment. So we, we don't do punishment. So this is when he discusses the idea of judging, referring to punishment specifically. So that's the chapter 7, verses, verses 1. Judge, which means, con- oh yes, uh, uh, Rose. I have in my notes Second uh, Samuel 12, 1 through 8, where Nathan uh, comes to David and tells him about the rich man and the poor man. Right. And so uh, that's a good scripture to add to that. that that's judgment. a great point. Because in that instance, uh, uh, Nathan says, okay, what should be done? And the job of a king is to make judgments, which is not just to certain right and wrong, but also break the proclamation. Here's the punishment or here's the blessing. David was ready to throw the book at him. Here's the punishment. And Nathan says, okay, you judged it. Now we'll put upon you. Here is your judgment, David. Now, of course, obviously God did some finagling on mercy there, but still the point is judgment was then, was then placed. Um, let's see, in, 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 to contrast that, yeah, to contrast that, look at, uh, look at uh, 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 Solomon, David's son, with the two, the, the, two, the two women, the two harlots. Now, he said, okay, both women are doing something wrong. They're both harlots. They're, they're paid, paid prostitutes, what they do for a living. That's how they survive. Now, in our Torah, that's not, that's not a good thing. You don't do that. You don't put your daughter up for prostitution. That's not, that's not a positive. That's a, that's a bad thing. That would be a, a discernment you're doing something wrong. But did Solomon condemn them for that? 
No, there was no judgment on their lifestyle at all. Even though he knew full well it was wrong. There was judgment only upon how do you divide the child. And then once the, 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 the scenario was, was sorted out, he determined now this one gets the child, the other one does not. Did he, did he then go off and kill the one who was lying? No. He didn't. They left. He said the dispute, even though the person of false accusation uh, officially kidnapped a child, kidnapping the baby, kidnapped the baby, and paraded off as her own and tricked the person to pretend that they, that they had murdered their child or killed their child. A lot of swindling, lying, stealing, kidnapping, all thrown in there. None of that did Solomon address. You're free to go. Just who the child belonged to and go your way. So Solomon's judgment was very, very lenient. Crazy lenient in modern day standards. We would never be, no judge I know would ever be this lenient as Solomon was. Solomon judged very leniently, very kind, very generous and forgiving, which most judges today would never be so. You kidnapped a child. <laughs> You've kidnapped a child. This is a kidnapping offense. You've got years in prison. You don't just say, oh, well, just go ahead and go, go home. Have a nice day. It doesn't work that way. So, so judgment is important. Both good contrast between King David and King Solomon both had a scenario, both made two different judgments. Maybe Solomon had the wisdom of his father. I don't know. As far as be careful what you judge, I'm not, I'm not positive. So let's see what in Matthew 7. Uh, judge not that you be judged, uh, for, that, for with what judgment, which is the word here is condemnation, that's what the judgment means, uh, you judge, you will be judged. So if you condemn somebody for this, the condemnation will go right upon you as well. And that's, that's, the, that's the level of judgments put upon you for your own scenarios. Um, we use, uh, back with you, Measure for measure, for measure uh, sorry, measure you use, we measure back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck out of your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls for a swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you in pieces. Now, the last verse there seems odd, out of place almost. It's not. It's purposely put there. It's a correct place to put it. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with the concept, uh, actually, does Revelation cover this one? It does. Uh, let's see, Revelation 21. So, in Revelation 21, the concept of pearls, all right, pearls. The, 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 the Revelation story, as well as modern day Jewish tradition, the term pearls means the, the, the valuable thing to get you what you need. It's the gateway or the function, the instruction. So, pearls for a swine in this instance, the idea is that you have given someone a bit of knowledge, a bit of value in their life. Hey, I'm struggling with this. Here's the way out. That is called a pearl. Here's the method which you solve it. That is called the pearl, or a pearl. Now note in Revelation, it points out the big gates are all made of one pearl. It's not because God was tired. He wanted something that was kind of off-white. <laughs> he was tired of gold all the time. I don't, I don't think that's the case. In reality, pearl meant something to any Jew who listened to it. It means this is the way in which you will solve your problem. This is how you will get your solution fixed. This is how your dispute will be settled. 
This is your, your, your way out, your solution. So don't cast your pearls for a spy means don't give your solutions to those who are going to destroy you. You have to take care of your own problems first. Take care of your own solutions, your own struggles, your own plank first. Then when your own plank is addressed, your own weaknesses are addressed, your own failures are addressed, then the words of God, the pearls of the Torah, those ways of life for helping somebody else can be revealed through you, through your own mouth. Say, hey, Moses said X, Y, Z in you know, Leviticus 19. Whatever you want to share makes no difference. The point is that that's when the tool is used. That's when your pearl is of value. That's when the gate is made way or their salvation, their solution for this problem can be brought forth, brought, brought out. That's the idea of the concept of judging or guiding somebody. It's the principle behind judge and condemnation. Uh, now we also have uh, this, 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 this idea as far as when we, we deal with judging and, and guiding along the way that, as mentioned, Rose put out with, with, with the kings, the measure you use is how you are measured with. So let's go back to Jethro and Moses. Now, Jethro and Moses, Moses' job was to, was to determine with the Torah's instructions, whatever God gave him up to that point, how to address the different disputes. So Moses is using the instructions from God to discern right and wrong and inclusive of what the punishment is. Well, you sinned against so-and-so, you know, this person stole that, you know, bag of feed for his goat, or whatever. Here's the pay it back plus 20% with the Torah. These are the instructions of how the judgment goes along with it. So Moses' job is both discernment as well as judgment or condemnation or punishment, as well as blessing too, because the recipient of the blessing is, is blessed, the, 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 the one who's, who's ruled in their favor. So that's his job. So what's Messiah's job? The same. The same thing. Because Moses is a messianic figure. He's living like a Messiah, so to speak. So Messiah's job would be the exact same thing of here's a scenario, who's right, who's wrong, here's the correction of punishment or blessing, and will he measure more harshly or more leniently? That is his discernment. He decides that. Solomon was lenient, David was harsh, right? Two, opposite, two, two, two opposing viewpoints. And that's how that was supposed to work. So that's what we learned as far as Messiah's job, as far as having to deal with these, with these difficulties, these struggles. So in this, in, in the, back with, 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 with Jethro, uh, as, we, as we understand a little bit more about Jethro's way in which God said, you will live this way, this is how you will struggle and handle your, 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 your disputes. As far as shooting around, where do you and I fall in place? Where is our responsibility? So the Messianic age, for a thousand years roughly, and then thereafter, those of us who are belonging to Messiah and theoretically have the Spirit of God with us and theoretically follow as best we can, where does our responsibility and what do our tasks lie? What are they to do? What are we supposed to do? What is the functionality of us? What purpose do we serve? What value are we? What's our job to be? The same job that Jethro pointed out with Moses. It's to understand what some Moses is supposed to teach them everything that God says. Find godly people who despise money. They're not interested in bribes, they're not interested in gaining for themselves power or money. And then have them settle the disputes. So what's our job going to be? Settling disputes. Just like 
the Torah says it is. How do we settle dispute? Based on what instruction? Based on what text? Based on what way of life? Right. It's written here. So the dispute, what's right and what's wrong, is written here inside of our Torah, inside of our, our, our Tanakhs. Because it is not a law, it is an instruction. Have you ever opened up a, a new a piece of paper that you had to assembly required and you chose to not follow the instructions? <laughs> Sometimes they're really easy. It's intuitive. It's obvious. Put this screw in here, part's done. Sometimes it's not so easy. It's less obvious. We put it down with instructions. So can we have a scenario given to us that we say, yeah, I got this. I don't need the instructions. Set aside. Who needs that? Oh, we'll just do it this way and make it up as you go. And you find out that, yeah, this part's upside down. This one's backwards. Crud, I didn't mean to do that. Now the screws show they're supposed to be hidden. Yeah, break it. <laughs> break them a lot. <laughs> if it doesn't go to better, use a hammer, right? No. <laughs> hammer does not make it better. So we choose to not follow instructions. What do you get? You might get a good result. Uh, hence the example of Jethro or people who don't follow God's life but still live a good life. They still are honorable people. They're sort of respectful people. You might turn out just fine and get a good result. But you might not. You might end up with Amalek. You might end up to, whoops, this is totally backwards. I got this inverted. So the idea of following the instructions, hence what Moses gave us, what Messiah gave us, all these that's the instructions. Now, the complicated part, how do you settle with judgment? See, the Torah gives you instruction what's right and wrong, settle disputes. But it does not give what we call judgment instructions. It tells you what judgments can be and can be limited to, what the minimum you can do, but it doesn't give a maximum. Sorry, scratch that. I've heard that. Sorry. It tells you what the maximum you can do. It does not give a minimum. So maximum you can do is the whole eye for eye thing, right? You can't take more than what someone has done to somebody else. But there's nothing that says you can't take less. You can't show what we call mercy, forgiveness, kindness. Did King Solomon, as an example earlier, did he follow the Torah's instructions? Not at all. Because kidnapping is a death penalty. With the two harlot women, he did not follow the Torah's instructions for punishment at all. He followed it for discernment. He gave away who, who, who is right, who is wrong. He out-tricked them, outsmarted them. Punishment was not carried out. So he showed mercy. In Messiah's instance, with the woman who was caught in adultery. Now, the man, of course, was not brought forth either, and that's an unjust scenario. But either way, regardless if the man was brought forth or not, in the court of adultery, what's the punishment? Well, it's adultery. It's a death penalty. Did he issue the death penalty to her? Well, he sort of. He said, whoever sinned cast the first stone, and of course, they all left. Whoever has no sin. And then he said, go your way and sin no more. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to punish you for this. Just stop doing it. So when it comes to judgment, what kind of judgment do you want put upon you? 
the kind of that, or King David's judgment? <laughs> Which one would you rather have? Sorry, Isaac, we go. I didn't catch catch uh, her 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 statement. I think it says, "Do unto others as you would have them do unto you." Exactly. So the idea of mercy, the golden rule, the idea of mercy, is fundamental in the process of judging and discernment. So when these individuals with Jethro and Moses, when they settle disputes, is their job to go find where is the hanging judge? We want him. Or no, where is the, the what's the opposite of hanging judge? Oh, there's another term for it, a phrase I, I skipped my mind off the top of my head. There's the hanging judge, the one that throws the book at you and the extreme the law at all times. Well, no, let's, let's appeal to the, to Josh, what, the lenient one, yeah. The, the, the one over there, the, the kind one, the, the one that, that, that's always lenient and that doesn't, doesn't, isn't, isn't harsh or anything. We'll, we'll take our case to that one instead. Well, yeah, you could do that. We call it judge shopping <laughs> or court shopping. Uh, and it's, it's, it's not necessarily right. It just is. Because they know some people are more harsh than others. Well, if that is a natural human instinct to find the one who's least harsh, for example, when you were children, my children are children, when they go to a dispute, depending on what it is, it is which parent they go to, <laughs> right? They know full well, well, on this subject matter, dad's more lenient. Or no, on that one, mom is. So they choose, they judge shop also. They find the most lenient one they can to determine which is the best one to choose. It, it, it's human preservation. They know what mercy is, right? It's, it's a human instinct. This one would less likely to spank me or less likely to get grounded or what the case may be if that's, that's the scenario, if I explain this particular way. They judge shop. Well, in the case of mercy, that's also a judge shopping, so to speak. So what did Messiah say? I only do what my father taught me, what my father showed me. And he showed abundance of mercy. So if God shows mercy, Messiah follows what his God told him to do and showed him to do. What is our job? The same. Follow the merciful route. God has been very patient and kind with each of us and with all the people of Israel. The other 40 years and, of course, the thousands of years it has been, he's been patient. Now, there are times which his patience had to end. Now, in the case of Israel, we'll find out later on, the 40 years will this, he decides this generation will die. Now, is that merciful? Yes. He didn't kill them immediately. He allowed them to live for 40 years. <laughs> so Rose's question is, do they get to come back to life? Every man, woman, and child is judged according to their actions. They just are. Infants have no actions to judge against. So I don't know how God's going to handle abortion, aborted ch- children, but that's not my issue that that's his to deal with. I, I don't know how to do it. But on everybody else who has an action, you judge based upon your actions, what you do. Now, mercy is where Messiah shows up. Okay, well, this action, he's the condemnations. Let's address this one by one and, and, and knock them out as, as Messiah's. Okay, I'll cover this one. I'll cover that one. What Messiah may say, I'm not covering that particular one. Because he's also a judge too. He can decide, you know what? You repeatedly did this, for example, some evil thing. You make it up in your mind, I don't care. You did this in my name over and over again. You continue to do this evil thing in my name. I'm not forgiving you for abusing my name or God's name. You don't do things that are evil in the name of God. 
Taking God's name in vain is bringing it down low, but doing something evil in his name is far worse. So there are certain things that Messiah and God, it's in their realm to decide. Those are what I consider big cases. Decide where mercy shows up, mercy does not. But that's not my decision to make. That's theirs. So because there have been histories full of people who've done things in God's name and are corrupt and evil and wicked in every imaginable way. So I don't show God's going to handle them. That's not my business. That's, I'm, not, I'm not in charge of the thousands. I'm not in charge of even 10. I only got five kids. <laughs> that's my limit. Well, partially my wife, but we're a team. So that's my limit of my judgment, my judgment status. I can handle that. So I'm not giving the great big things. But so when it comes to, 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 to mercy in these instances, these people, one of the good blessings you can get from God is a punishment in this life for a sin in this life. That's a sign of mercy. Uh, King David had that problem with Joab, his, 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 his commander, who had, had multiple counts of murder on, on his hands. And David pointed out to his son Solomon, make sure he doesn't die of old age. He needs to die in this life, be killed in this life for it. And that was an important thing. Like, well, he's just mean and bloodthirsty. No, it's important for Joab's salvation to punish him this life for it, rather than let God take him and God handle him after he dies. Okay, now you're going to address these murder counts because the murdered people are sitting right next to you saying, I was unjustly murdered and this man did it. So you don't want those testimonies against you in the next life. Take him out here and now. You'll be far safer and better off. So in that, that was a mercy side, a mercy component that, that David saw and realized it is better for certain condemnations, for certain corrections to be done here and now while you're flesh and blood than it is for God to get a hold of you. I believe Messiah said the same thing. He said those who harm little ones, it better be a millstone hung by their neck and thrown in the river than they fall in the hands of the living God. So if they die of old age, or they die of some natural cause, having committed great sins and crimes against children, they're now in God's hands to punish. And Messiah said that was a scary thing. Now, if he is saying that's a scary thing, it's a scary thing. It's not something which I would want to venture or imagine what it would or would not be. But that's a, a negative thing that I would not want to be in those person's shoes. So there's certain crimes or scenarios where God may say, hey, judgment here and now is better for you that judgment later on. Yes, uh, Larry, your hand is up. It was in the thing where he says, I show mercy to thousands, but I will no, no, by no means leave the, leave the guilty unpunished. unpunished. Exactly, exactly. And, it, 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 and that's a true statement. So he, that, that's a big thing that God pointed out. He, when, when Moses asked, I want to see your, see your face, and God said, this is the declaration as far as what he does, and it declares who he is. So th- these are fundamental beliefs and understanding of our God, and it's not to quibble about or discuss it. This is how it works. This is how he works, how he, what he calls himself on to, to, for us to understand and see about him. So some judgments, some difficulties may not come through, but Rose answered your previous question regarding the people that will this, will be resurrected? Almost guaranteed yes. Because they were all punished in their lifetime for their sins. Now, I can't speak to those who died of old age for whatever reason, or we're not punished for whatever sins they are. And I don't know anything about them. But those who are punished in your lifetime for your own sins, by guarantee, God's going to address you. 
if God ignores you and lets you just live your life out and full of sin and die naturally, I don't know. I don't know what God will do to you. Will he address you? I'm sure. But how he will address you, I would be too afraid to find out. And I'm too afraid to even say what it would be like because that would be considered judgment. <laughs> there is repentance, right? There is repentance. And I do not know how God will handle those. You, and it's important to trust in this life. Exactly. Isaac, will you, 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 when she's talking, she, 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 Rose was pointing out, if you address your repentance in this life and deal with them now, it will be fair better for you. That's absolutely true. Repentance is a big, big deal. I don't know what Hitler did the day he died. I have no idea whether he repented or not. Who knows? To him and God. I wouldn't want to be in his shoes. But the point is that there are, there are evil people that exist. Uh, I wouldn't want to be in the shoes of, of, of a leader who says, there is no God, and then dies. Well, yeah, I don't want to be in their shoes. So those are scenarios which you would say, hey, you may repent, but you may live your whole life godly and then said, there is no God at the end. And yeah, Ezekiel 18 applies. You're done. <laughs> All your goodness is then erased. And if you're as an old man, you said, there is no God. I don't need God. God's garbage. It's empty. You know, was it opium of the masses? Things was called? Was it the phrase? Right. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be in that man's shoes. Anyhow, any comments, questions? Right, our Torah portion. This is about the nature that's supposed to work. Um, I didn't get all the details. One of the, one of the, one of the things I did want to talk about just briefly, very briefly, I'll just mention it now real quick, was that uh, God pointed out the spiritual, the, the issue about no one's allowed on the mountain in chapter 19. Don't go, don't touch it, no animals, no nothing. He makes most re- 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 reiterate, go back down, verify. Nobody's allowed on the mountain. You can't touch it. Don't go on it. Don't go near it. At least you see something you shouldn't see. Um, that's a physical limitation. Killed by a stone or by an arrow, both man and beast would be killed by stone or arrow if they touch the mountain. I says, well, why is God so adamant about that? It's simple. Revelation 21 explains what he's saying. 21 verse 22 to 27 points out that no evil individual is allowed in the New Jerusalem. They're blocked the border. Nothing good, there's nothing bad can come into what is good. And so it's a physical example of a later spiritual effect. So spiritually speaking, as a spirit being, is an evil spirit allowed inside of the New Jerusalem? No. Is the evil flesh and blood person allowed inside the New Jerusalem? The answer is no. Is a good spirit allowed in? Yes. A good flesh and blood person? Yes. Those are allowed in the New Jerusalem, but the, 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 evil, or the, the, the evil or the corrupt are not. Since by definition, God's holy people are not, don't come to the mountain, you can't come in. The boundaries, the walls are too thick. The gates are not open to you. That's the principle discussed in Revelation 21. So I apologize to get that earlier. But any comments or questions about our Torah portion? Um, I didn't cover all of Matthew 5. I wanted to, but uh, one of the details of Matthew 5, in particular 17, 18, and 19, but all the topics of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 discuss the idea of what we would consider minor laws or minor details, which Messiah points out, these are the important ones. Well, these minor ones matter because if you follow the minor ones, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, follow the minor ones, you by definition won't break the important ones. Minor ones even think your thought of adultery, you committed adultery. Your thought of hatred, you committed murder. The thinking process is sufficient enough to say, that's where it's evil. That's where evil is at. That's where it's stored at. So he addresses that these are minor things. We call it minor, used for minor. The Torah does not specifically talk about your personal thoughts, 
It talks about actions, as I pointed out, but the actions come from those thoughts. Anyway, so I didn't get to that, so I apologize for that. Uh, any other comments or questions? Yes, Larry. Um, I recently was reading something that said that <clears throat> they thought that the, the um, not going up on the mountain could have been just for their own protection because when he speaks, it says he blows the trees up and the rocks fall. Fall, yep, and, that's and true too. So if they got on, they got too close and he was going to speak. Yeah, and that there could be. There could be, a, 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 I, I, I imagine, my personal imag- imagination here, I imagine the reason why flesh and blood are not allowed, sorry, sorry, evil flesh and blood, not allowed the kingdom of God as far as, not the kingdom, as far as the new New Jerusalem to visit and come and go, which Ezekiel says you can as a flesh and blood person. You can come and go. You just can't live there. Um, the reason why evil is not allowed there because what would happen to evil? It would perish. It would, by, by definition, because it's the opposite of God, it would just immediately die. It would not have the opportunity to say, I'm sorry. I repent. It's too late. It's already dead. It's now dust and it's vaporized or whatever God's going to do. I don't really care. It's his business. But the day, the, the, that's the process. So, don't allow it in. Allow it to repent out there. <laughs> Say, I'm sorry out there. Flip its life around out there. Then, okay, now you can come in and you can visit and come and have your, your issues addressed or whatever the case may be. It's also for the same, it's also equally, it's for the protection of the individual to not allow an evil person into the kingdom of God. It protects them also. They have an opportunity to say, I don't want to be evil anymore, as opposed to being evil entering in out of boldness. I believe uh, Uzziah had that problem. Gosh, of leprosy, on the spot. <laughs> How dare you enter without an invitation? You can't do that. And of course, he, he's, he's cast off as, as, a, uh, as a leper the rest of his life. So you don't want a, a, somebody who is weak to enter in when they have the opportunity to repent while they're still out. Uh, yes, uh, Anne. Um, in the beginning of the readings, so it goes back to the beginning of what? Chapter uh, of today's reading was chapter eighteen. All right, it it said about despising money. Yes, despise that's exactly one of Jethro's point. It's despising money, right? So uh, in the age of despising money, now modern day we interpret that to mean does not want to take bribes, but that's not complete because there are multiple forms of bribes. There's the I give you money, that's the obvious overt bribe. Then there's the subtle bribe. Want to come over for dinner tonight? Want to come over for dinner tonight? It's a subtle bribe. Or, you know what? I have a new job of so-and-so. You, you know, you, is, is your son available to do this job for me? That's also a bribe. Because then you now have favor. You're the judge. You now have, you will lend favor toward the individual who has the dispute. Put yourself in the opposite person's shoes. So, Rose, you, let's pretend you have a dispute with Larry. And we'll pretend Jeff's the judge. You both go before him. Okay, I have the dispute. Larry said they did this, and I did that. And judge, Jeff's just, oh, he's listening to the case. And Larry says, oh, by the way, uh, you know, Jeff, last night did at your house. It was the best. Thank you so much for inviting me. How about next week you come to my house? What's going through your head then as the hearer of that statement? Uh-huh, and he's your judge, though. Jeff's judging between your case. You can't trust him. So, the bribe is a physical overt bribe, but also is the side bribe of saying, hey, Jeff, you know what? You're, yeah, the kids can have kids, but 
Your son, I, I, I hear he's, he's, he's getting old, he's strong enough to do this. You know, I can use some yard work. I'll pay him like 20 bucks an hour. No, him saying, to, let's pretend Jeff had a son. And, and Larry said that to, 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 to Jeff regarding his son, to employ his, 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 his child. Right. It's all still a bribe. And so the, the idea of despising money, yeah, it's all forms of bribe. Despising money is, there is value, there's money for myself as well as money for the individuals. Let's pretend Larry was a multi-billionaire and you were poor, or vice versa. Better yet, let's flip it around. Let's say you're a multi-billionaire and Larry's dirt poor. And the judge is up there saying, okay, they're disputing about a piece of property that you two own. You know what? Yeah, Larry may have you know, took an extra half acre he wasn't supposed to, but he's so poor. This guy has so much extra. What are they going to care? Yeah, now you just valued lack of money. You see, you, you still, you still, you, the, the judge then put favor on for a poor person because they didn't have very much. But disputes don't work that way. You can't solve Torah by corruption. Discernment is absolute discernment. What is right? What is wrong? So the judge has to be both blind to your personal financial statuses as well as cannot receive or expect or despise the idea of either him benefiting from either of you. They should not take a bribe or show favor to the poor or the rich alike. So you have, that's the nature. So just pointing out, find people who are like that to default solve disputes. That's a, that's a valuable judge, an impartial judge from both the overt, the act, physical actions for you to, to the judge, as well as judges, friends, family, or loved ones. And that's in which one of our modern day major struggles within our own representative government is bribes, not to the representative themselves, but sometimes to their assistant, their employee, the person whose job is to pre-screen the literature or the written out law for you and give you the the quick rundown of it, because you're not going to read it yourself. Oh, yes, uh, 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 Jeff. One of the challenges that's going on and has been a, an issue with governments is the bribe of information, mm. basically insider information, and to make profit off, off of the in, not only the information that you know, but also to uh, steer laws toward the investments that you make to steer yep. laws away from people that you don't like. Right. That's a great point. And that, that, that's a serious problem. And it, it's, it, it's, and it's hard, really, really hard to find and detect. So if I have a dispute with a local representative, or sorry, regarding this dispute, but he receives or he is invested in a particular business or company that is benefiting from the, my, my opponent Guess what's going to happen? It'll be ruled against me in my against my favor, even though nothing overt that I could see was a problem. But because of private investment, he gained money out of it. The love of money is the root of all evil. It's written that way for a reason. It's not that money is the root of all evil, but rather the love of money, it, the motive behind it. Money is a necessary thing to buy and sell and eat because you don't have money. Guess what? You don't buy food. So there's and you work for it. It is the evil. It's the love of it. The the manipulation of what is right and wrong to gain that, to gain power, gain money, and it's usually power is usually gained through money. Uh, yes, Larry. 
So what what's what is the actual? Uh, you were saying in our in our we we read it as love um, hates money, and what what's the actual um, meaning of that behind it? You then you then you went off and saw about other kinds of other kinds of right. Uh, so they, oh, so they hates money. So despises money. Despises both personal gain. It's not to despise money of somebody being rich and else being poor. That the issue between you that that's not because they're supposed to be impartial to that. But despise me of not having their own personal gain or gain for their own personal personal value of their friends. That that's the idea of despising money. They cannot use despise and the idea of despise somebody else who has money. Now, mind you, in this instance in time in history, judges are not the poverty stricken. They're not the poorest of individuals. And there's a reason why they're not that way. But in this time of history, they're not that way. And even today, they're not supposed to be that way. So it would not be intended that the person would despise another person who has money, but rather they themselves would despise the gain of it. There was no, it's of no value to them. That they consider their lives, I have enough. What I have is sufficient for me. It's the same principle of the last commandment, thou shalt not covet. I have no desire to keep gaining more. I don't want yours. You have what you have, I, what I have, I'm content with it, being a content individual. That's not an easy thing to find for someone to be content their whole lives. And typically, typically, just my personal observation of life, they tend to not be young people. They tend to be older people who are actually better at that who don't have a, a great ambition of trying to gain. I say tend to be. There are obvious exceptions. Our government's full of them. But the point is that generally for a decent judge who has, I have everything I need. My family's taken care of. I don't need, I can now look at your cases more impartially. They have years and years of wisdom on them and they don't have a, a great desire for personal gain. That typically is the case. I well, not 100%, but just typically. That's just my personal observation. More weight you've got hanging around your That's neck. That's true. The more things you have, the more the more the more baggage you have. This is weight, not have struggles. more stuff. I don't want any right. more I'm stuff. I'm tired of stuff. I'm I'm over overburdened. Uh, Alex, your hand is up. Go to unmute yourself, sir, so we can hear you. But um, I I know some of you guys know Hebrew well a heck of a lot better than I do. I know next to none, but I'm I'm pretty fascinated with it just as a learning experience and uh, uh, delved in quite a few books. And the words that we hear growing up uh, in King James, that they hate money, or I guess if you get into the Hebrew more, it's really not that simple. It's, it's more of a emotional language, and obviously I'm preaching to the choir here. So, yeah, when we, when we see this about hate money, it's always, I've always been taken aback by it. Like, well, you know, I don't hate money, you know, and I, I sure hope I don't. So anyway, I think you know the point. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, the, the idea, uh, yeah, the English concept of hate is an intense passion. That's irrelevant. There is no intense passion re regarding the Hebrew concept of hate. Hate is, uh, I have no use for. The idea of hate is, I have no use for. That's the principle behind it, hate. Um, to hate evil, I have no use for evil. Uh, to hate money. I have no use for money. That, the idea is it's of no value to me. That's the concept of hate in Hebrew. It's not like I have to intensely have this, this emotional response 
no, <laughs> that's not what they're referring to. It's a, I have no use for it. It is, a, it is of no value to me. Um, in the case of God said, Esau, I have hated Jacob. Jacob said, Esau, I have hated. It's like it, God's pointing out, Esau, I have no use for you. You're, you're of no value to me. And so the God's saying, I have this intense emotional response to Esau. That's not what the concept of hate means in, in Hebrew text of hate. It is that I have no value. It despises, it's of no use to me. It's, a, it's, a, it's of garbage. Um, much like when King Saul's men came and sacked and destroyed Amalek, things that were of no intrinsic value, they just destroyed and burned up. Because they, they, they hated them, they despised them, they were of no value. Not they have this intense emotional response to you know, a piece of furniture. <laughs> this isn't a, the idea of, a, oh, this piece of furniture, I have to hate it by emotionally respond to it. That's not the concept of hate. It's I have no value. It's of no use to me. It's of, of no significant importance. That's the idea of hate. Versus love, this is of value to me. This has importance to me. I value it. It, it is be set aside of be usefulness to me or to others. So yes, he's absolutely right. Alex is correct. That the concept of hate is not well, how we think of the emotional response. Any other comments or questions? All right, we'll conclude with a prayer then. Almighty God, our great Father, thank you. Thank you for our Shabbat day of rest. To think of, thank you for guiding us, Father, and helping us along our way. May we continue to instruct and follow your way of life, Father, to continue to choose the way of life. And as, Father, we see and understand and explore and, 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 and be guided more and open our eyes further to your ways, may we be flexible enough to follow them. Father, we thank you and ask your blessing upon our, upon our instruction of life, Father, that we share, share amongst our friends and family and loved ones that our pearls will not be given to swine, but rather given to those who will value them. We praise you and ask your blessing, Father, in Yeshua's name. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at halel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Halel.info. Halel.info.